Welcome to the Hive Poetry Collective on KSQD, Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. I'm your host, Victoria Bañales. Tonight, I have the pleasure of speaking with three poets from Cabrillo College's new literary arts journal, Sinatli Journal, also known as Journal X. The journal's first edition was published last year in 2021 during the pandemic lockdown. And the second edition is currently in production and will be available August or September of 2022. Today's featured Journal X poets are Carla Schick, Claudia Ramirez Flores, and Gustavo Adolfo Guerra Vasquez. But before I introduce our poets, let me tell you a little bit about Journal X for listeners who are outside of Santa Cruz County. So Journal X, as I mentioned, is a new literary arts magazine that focuses on social justice issues. And if I am talking about a we that's inclusive, that's because I am not only the host of the Hive Poetry Collective, but I'm also the founder and editor of the journal. So the journal is put together by English students at Cabrillo College's satellite campus the Watsonville Center, and the students function as an editorial board. They read all the submissions and decide the journal's content. So in addition to producing the journal, the students organize a celebration in which poets and artists are invited to speak and present their work. This year's celebration took place on May 6th of 2022. And it featured 20 poets and artists from Santa Cruz and Monterey counties, as well as the Bay Area. We had students, poet laureates, published authors, and artists in attendance. It was a really spectacular and beautiful event. Our deadline for submission is always December 30th. So anyone interested in submitting to our journal, you can just go to the Cabrillo College website and type Journal X in the search box. And for listeners who are curious and would like to read Journal X, you can read the journal online. The first edition is available on the website. The second one is forthcoming. You can always check our website for update. So on that note, I'm very excited to introduce our first featured poet, Carla Sheik is a queer activist for liberation, educator and union activist, lover of jazz and language. They have worked for an education system that empowers our students. Published in San Francisco City College's Forum, Milvia Street, Sinister Wisdom, Earth's Daughters, and online at the Writer Launch and A Gathering of the Tribes, they received their certificate in creative writing slash poetry from Berkeley City College. Welcome, Carla. Thank you, and I'm glad to be here and honored to be a part of this journal. Uh, the first poem I'm going to read is a poem called Miracles Can't Always Save Lives, and it's after John Coltrane's song, Alabama. It starts with a quote. We must be concerned not merely about who murdered them, but about the system, the way of life, 
the philosophy which produced the murderers. And that was Martin Luther King's eulogy for the four girls murdered by white supremacists in Birmingham, Alabama, Church, 1963. Hot, humid, Alabama, summer end, drowned breath. Black resistance gathers, pushing against brutal streams from firemen's hoses. Trained dogs jump and bite. Summer night terror and bombs in church basements, bombs underneath a stairwell. Four little girls reciting their Sunday prayers, then gone. Blasts from the sheriff's brigade, the KKK, four girls and the explosions that rocked Birmingham into endless vigils. Four deaths, 22 injured, a line up to register dissent, stood in the heat, rallied a song, struggled against retreat, four girls in the belly of an organizing church. While Coltrane marked the cadences of MLK's eulogy, the rhythms of his long silences, pausing for our inner responses. A discordant song wound around a path we walk from Birmingham to Chicago, to our homes, wherever that might be. Look into the eyes of the assassins. When will our country stop beating down black children, friends, and generations of families? Coltrane plays stories, African diaspora, rising up with a syncopated movement of notes. Wow, thank you, Carla. Such an impactful poem, especially given the recent mass shootings, uh, May 14th in Buffalo, New York. Tell us a little bit about your inspiration for writing this poem. I mean, your, um, your, in your bio, um, you note that you're a lover of jazz. So I'm I'm curious, were you listening to this? And by the way, it's thanks to your poem that I actually went to YouTube and saw and listened to John Coltrane's Alabama, which I hadn't before. And it, it just blew my mind. I was like practically in tears. It's such an emotional piece. But tell us your inspiration for writing this poem. How did it happen? Was it after listening to John Coltrane? Yeah, well, the first I was raised on jazz. My dad was a big jazz fan, but I first found John Coltrane through an album called The Gentle Side of John Coltrane. And it had two songs on it, especially that really moved me. And Alabama was one of them. And then years later, I heard a, a talk about how John Coltrane actually made the cadences of his song of the jazz song matched the cadence of Martin Luther King's speech. So that became an inspiration for this poem and that there's a kind of healing to the, to the music, but there's also a call to action. It's, it's not enough, as we say, there's prayers and, and thoughts are not enough. There must be a call to action and a searching too, like for, for searching for the empowerment that comes with the songs to resist the oppression that comes with such brutal murders. So that was really the big inspiration for me. And just being a person who, from the time I was young, being committed to really anti-racist social justice movements. Yeah. And, and like I said, it's so, um, it's so current. I think that's the part that's so disturbing. It's disturbing that this happened, you know, 
Uh, you have this quote here by Martin Luther King, 1963, but then here we are, 2022. Um, of course, I was also thinking of, the, it made me think of Charleston mass shooting that happened in 2015, which happened to be in a, in a Black church as well. Tell me about the title, Miracles Can't Always Save Lives. Well, I, I think it's the idea that, you know, we have this idea that prayer you know, and prayer is important. I'm not going to put prayer down, but prayer is important for inner healing. But it's not a miracle that is going to save these lives. It's going to be our actions and, and how we respond to life so that these events don't happen. And so that's where the idea of the miracles came in for me. And that at the same time, for me, jazz music is a kind of miracle. So there's a kind of double meaning there. It's like, yes, it's important because that's what keeps us going and that's what inspires us, art, music, poetry, but it's also not sufficient. And I also come to this as a person who is an educator. I mean, I have taught many, many youth of color and many, many African-American students. And I think about them all the time to this day, even those of, who are much older now and wonder and worry about them because we live in such an unjust world. So in my head, it's not just the four little girls, but the people that I know and the people that I am concerned about and the people that I love. Yeah. Thank you for that explanation. I'm also struck by the form, the form of the poem, the structure. It's got, it's got about five stanzas, but it has seven lines, at least the first three stanzas, but then something happens in the middle. Uh, there's an indentation where you start with well, Coltrane, Coltrane mark the cadences of MLK's eulogy, the rhythms of his long silences, pausing for our inner responses, a discordant song, wound around a path we walk from Birmingham to Chicago to our homes, wherever that might be. Look into the eyes of the assassins. And then this part's in italics. When will our country stop beating down Black children, friends, and generations of families? I love the line, a discordant song, wound around a path we walk. Uh, when I first read it, I thought it said wraparound. It's so funny. When I went back, I was like, how did I miss that? It said wound around, which I just think is brilliant. Wound around. And of course, I also love the ending. I think the ending is really powerful. The play of language there, the syncopated movement, because there's the movement in our bodies are moving, but movement as in terms of social justice. And I, I love that it puts us in the poem. It's the hour and the we. Thank you for that. And before we move on, can you tell us a little bit about where you're at right now? Where are you from? Where do you reside? And um, how'd you become a poet? Um, I, live, I live in Oakland. I'm originally from New York, as most people can tell when I open my mouth. Um, I started actually writing in high school, which is many, many, many decades ago. And I, I actually started with very overt political poetry and then personal stuff. When I was teaching, I didn't actually have that much time to write. And when I, I am a retired teacher, and, and so I went back and decided to get my certificate in writing. And I, that was not my intention. I got talked into it. My intention was just to take a few classes on writing and go from there. But I'm really glad that I did. And I learned a lot. And not only am I a better writer from taking those classes, but I'm also a better reader. And that's really important, too, to learn how to be a good reader of poetry or literature. 
All right. Thank you so much. If you're just tuning in, this is the Hive Poetry Collective, and we just heard Carla Schick's first poem. We will return to them after we hear from Claudia Ramirez Flores. So let me introduce Claudia. Claudia is our second featured poet from Journal X, second edition, which will be out August or September of 2022. That information will be in our show notes. If you're interested in getting a copy, you can also read it online. We will post the PDF online. So Claudia Ramirez Flores is a poet, fearless writer, and Mexican immigrant who highlights crucial social issues in our world by writing about immigration, mental health, death, and healing. She seeks to give a voice to the thousands of missing people in Mexico. She has studied at Cabrillo College, UC Berkeley, and Yale University. Welcome, Claudia. Thank you, Vicky. So my first poem that I'll be reading is Mi Querido Abuelito Chente. Mi Abuelito Chente, only the best human that ever existed. Such a divine being, so wise, so elegant, skin golden brown, the color of the Aztec gods. Every word escaping his mouth, so carefully chosen. Mi Abuelito Chente carried his clothes and his bicicleta to the laundromat. A giant black bag filled up with muddy jeans and paños drenched in hard-working sweat. Mi abuelito Chente jumped in the giant trash and recycling bin, collecting aluminum cans. In his eyes, there were nickels and dimes, no second wasted, as he waited for his ride home. After a long day picking raspberries, a hard-working crop grower, campesino, his soul now stuck at the border, dead one mile north of the border, but always watching and guiding us through. Nebolito Chente was no saint, smoking Malboros every day. I lament that I don't know who he would have been today. I lost him at such a young age. I wish he knew me now. Querido Abuelito Chente, lo quiero, lo extraño. I never got to say goodbye to you. I always wish you would have remained in our lives, but he's been with me all along, cheering me on and always staying in my heart. I honor you, mi querido abuelito Chente, con mi labor, mi trabajo, mis ganas. Vicente Ramirez Serrano presente. Thank you, Claudia, for this beautiful poem honoring your grandfather, your abuelito Chente. I love how you present Abuelito Chente as a person full of complexities. He was a divine being, so wise, so elegant. But then you say, Mi Abuelito Chente was no saint smoking marbles every day. And then it just, you open it up to the imagination, right? You just keep it at that. But I really love that. One of the things that really um, struck me about this poem is, um, I mean, you honor him for a variety of reasons, but uh, twice you mentioned how hardworking your abuelito was. He was drenched in hardworking sweat, and he's a hardworking crop grower picking raspberries all day. And then at the very end, when you close the poem, that seems to be something that he gifted you because it ends with, I honor you, mi querido abuelito Chente, con mi labor, mi trabajo, mis ganas. 
Yes, thank you. Thank you for um, noticing that. So I think that was one of the gifts that he passed down to me. Um, I witnessed like all his hard work as a migrant worker. He would work like the season in the United States and then migrate back home to Mexico. And in Mexico, he would work in his house and always help around the house. And he was just a person that never stopped. I love this stanza. Mi abuelito Chente jumped in the giant trash and recycling bins, collecting aluminum cans. In his eyes, they were nickels and dimes, no second wasted as he waited for his ride home after a long day picking raspberries. I just really love that image of your abuelito because well, I think for a lot of listeners, especially if you come from a Latinx background, working class agricultural background, poverty, essentially, we have mm. these memories. I do remember seeing my grandmother. And unfortunately, I remember feeling ashamed at the time. And but there's nothing to be ashamed about it. That's just internalized racism and internalized classism. I remember being in high school and seeing my abuelita going through the garbage cans. I, I just think it's so amazing that you're honoring your abuelito this way. And you're taking pride in your abuelito's hard work. You know, and this image of your abuelito collecting cans is just incredible. One other thing that really struck me is the change in poetic narrative voice. You're writing the poem in the third person throughout. It's about mi abuelito Chente, but then you talk directly to your abuelito. Uh, you say, querido abuelito Chente, lo quiero, lo extraño. I never got to say goodbye to you. I always wish you would have remained in our lives. Uh, why the shift suddenly, the third person to the second person? Yes, yeah, so I think um, that it has been kind of um, the way that I, I speak to him throughout my life because I lost him when I was nine years old. It's a really sad story. Um, we immigrated, like my family and I immigrated after a, a while of my dad and my grandpa migrating to the U.S. Um, like through just a season. And then the first year that all the family came through, my grandma came with us and she had a week that had just arrived and my grandpa was supposed to arrive um, the next week. And we instead received the call that he had passed away in the border. So um, to me, that was like really shocking. Like we were finally gonna all be reunited in the United States and then he just passed away. So I never got to say goodbye to him. And I just remember always speaking to him, like through the pictures that I saw of his funeral. And it just um, was a way for me to connect with him and always feel him in my heart and always know that he was around because I was speaking to him directly. So I talk about him, but then sometimes I speak to him directly. And I think um, I brought that to this poem. Yeah, thank you. That's definitely in the lines, right? Where you say... And I guess that makes sense what you're saying right now, because it says a hardworking crop grower, campesino, his soul now stuck at the border, but always watching and guiding us through. So even though he's passed in this tragic way, he's still alive. He's alive in your memory, like a, like a guardian angel, sort of, I suppose. And then you mention it again later on, but he's been with me all along, cheering me on and always staying in my heart. So he lives, he lives in your heart. This beautiful poem, Claudia, definitely. Thank you for sharing this poem with us. 
So if you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Hive Poetry Collective on KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. I'm your host, Victoria Bañales, talking to Journal X poets, Carla Schick, Claudia Ramirez Flores, who just read her poem, Mi Querido Abuelito Chente, and Gustavo Adolfo Guerra Vasquez. So we're going to move on with our next poet, which is Gustavo. Gustavo Adolfo Guerra Vasquez is a multimedia artist whose work has been featured in La Raiz, Fingir, Arte Latino Now, The Coiled Serpent, and The Wandering Song. A Guatemalan Angelino, Gustavo facilitates artistic workshops on poetry and social justice through his consulting work on inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility leadership. You can see his work at idealbridges.com or follow him on Instagram as at Poeta Artista. You can subscribe to his YouTube channel at Gming. Uh, Gustavo lived in Santa Cruz and Watsonville during the 1990s, where he organized cultural events like Noche de Artistas and the Sabor a Chocolate art exhibit. And I will be putting a lot of this information in our show notes. Okay, so Gustavo, take it away. Um, thank you for having me and also for to Journal X for this opportunity. Uh, the first poem that I am going to read is a rather short one, and it's called Jesus Saves, or Jesus Sabes, depends on how you read it. Jesus Saves. Sabes? Jesus is out dealing. Does he save? No, he sends the money home to his mom, Lupe. Does she know? Are you kidding? If she knew, she'd pull down his chonis and give him some good nalgadas. I mean, I've heard of turning water into wine, but to be out there pushing dimes? He acts as if he's out there giving communion. May God have mercy on his soul. Amen. Oh, that's fantastic, Gustavo. I did not realize that Jesus, I knew that Jesus and Jesus, that I captured early on and my editorial board just had a blast with that. We did not capture the the play of language, the the bilingualism with saves and savas, and that is just fantastic. Oh my gosh! <laughs> Tell me your inspiration for writing this poem. Actually, it's inspired by a young person that I work with in Watsonville. Uh, once I graduated from Santa Cruz, I I moved to Watsonville, and I was working with young people who were at risk of. Um, joining gangs or who were involved in gangs for different reasons. And um, I found out that one of them was out actually out there dealing. And this is a kind of a sarcastic telling of this supposed, you know, young person who's, who's dealing drugs. Right. And uh, I kind of try to make it like two people. A lot of times we'll gender them as mujeres, but men gossip too. So, you know, it's kind of like, to people who are talking about this young person named Jesus, who is out there dealing and, you know, sends his money to his mom. And that was kind of the inspiration for this. It's a very serious topic, but at the same time, it's inflected with humor. Are you kidding? If she knew, she'd pull down his chonies and give him some good nalgadas, which is a good spanking. So... Can you tell me about that line? What were what were you trying to convey or what I think I was doing, and, and I tend to use humor both 
when something's awkward. Personally, I tend to use humor when something's awkward and will crack a joke at the most inopportune time. And some of my poetry can be playful. Some of my writing can be that way as well, in a sacrilegious way sometimes, like this poem, right? And and I thought about, well, what if this young man's mother knew that he was dealing? Like, what would she do? And, you know, the stereotype is that, you know, a Latina mom will pull your chonies down and, and spank you, right? Not say that that's condoned, but it was kind of like, what would a mother do if she would find out that her son was dealing, um, the interesting thing about it is that he's also sending the money home. Yeah, that that's what makes it difficult, right? Because we don't know what's going on with his sous and why he's dealing, but it sounds like part of the reason is poverty and sending money home. I assume Lupe's, I don't know, in a, a different country, possibly. But what I got out of it too, the humor I think really helps with the poem is... um. It made me think of Jesus as a very young boy, right? If the mom would pull down his chonies and give him some good nalgadas. So I immediately assumed Jesus was just a young kid who's out there dealing. I don't know if that's accurate or not. I think I think the thing about it was that a lot of these young men, um, most, I mean, there were young women who were involved in the activities that, that I was describing earlier. But, but, you know, a lot of them were like man-child or, you know, a little bit older than boys. I was working with kids who were barely in middle school at Aptos Middle School. You know, for me, it was also kind of like looking at the development of these young people and how they're still not necessarily adults. I, I love all the religious imagery. I have to say, uh, Jesus, the name of the, the, the kid, is also son of God. Lupe, right? Guadalupe, the Virgin Mary. And then you've got this thing with the communion. He acts as he's out there giving communion. Wow. That's incredible. Th thank you for sharing this poem. Is there anything else you wanted? Well, the fact that they, that contrast, right? Saving money, he saves his family. But like, as you point out at the end of the poem, he's hurting people because of drugs is out there. Um, drug dealing. I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to say about the poem. Well, the title comes from, you know, those signs that we see out there in, you know, different places on churches, and it'll say like, Jesus saves, right? There's a question mark at the end of the title, because it's like, well, you know, does Jesus save? Or, you know, does Jesus save, right? And then I'm even playing with the, the term saving, like saving money, or saving lives, or hurting lives. So, you know, there's a lot of that kind of pun sort of stuff going on there. That's fantastic. And it's like such a short poem and you packed so much with all that double meaning and these rich religious images. And just you saying right now about the signs of the road reminded me of Carla's poem, right? How they were talking about like thoughts and prayers are not going to do much for us, right? We need some more serious intervention. So Thank you for this poem, Gustavo. All right, let's loop back to Carla. Carla, read us your next poem. This is Carla Chic. Thank you. Uh, so the name of this poem is, I wanted to talk to a person, but had to let speech go. 
about October 2020, trying to shelter in place and be safe. The block was lonely. I thought I could talk to the trees or the sunlight sparkles through leaves on cement. Walking, the only way I got through the isolation of COVID sequestering, when not even a buzz from strangers entered my ears. Walking, my mask in hand, autumn cold on my face, when I leapt off the sidewalk as a young white skater man approached, he turned to me and coughed on my shoulder, shattered the sunlight in my brain, coughed as though my life would dissolve right here, right at this moment. And I felt my lungs clawing at my throat. Was it because I'm queer or older or? This was not news. I've known this fear of dying before, clenching my jaw so I wouldn't spit out words to betray myself. How many rooms will be filled with these hateful young men? Just like the shaved head, skinhead type boys at the gas station. If I opened my mouth with the rage I sheltered peel out, I kept my eyes on the ground. When my girlfriend came toward me from the convenience store, I prayed she wouldn't ask me any questions. I slid into the car, windows unwashed, and lurched off. When I was young, I was better at pretending I had no fear. I'd glare at the white boy's well-oiled hair at the back of the school bus, boys getting high, shouting racist words at Black people, waiting at the corner for the light to change. I thought I could pierce their facade of bravery. Cowards, they'd beat up anyone who couldn't fight back. Jews coming home from synagogue, black people on the street, these white gangs cornering off their territory. I spent mornings penetrating their brains with my eyes. They never saw me anyhow, a person they labeled as an undesirable girl, a person unable to challenge their dominion. I hid my body under layers of clothes, chose to write poetry on torn pieces of used binder papers or in journals where my letters got smaller and smaller, almost invisible, like my queer body performing disappearing acts. I chose instead to set my syllables on fire with a magnifying glass over leaves, burn the whole building down, fantasies that arise before sleep touching my own trembling, riding out New York snowstorms on the tip of my untamed tongue. So when the young men coughed at me, on me, wishing me gone this COVID day, I recalled a fearlessness inherited from my youth, and I let him merge into the horizon, a pinpoint on my imagination. So if you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Hive Poetry Collective on KSQD, Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. I'm your host, Victoria Bañales. And we were just listening to Carla Schick. Another terrific poem, very impactful, very current. Uh, did you want to, uh, I imagine this happened to you that you wrote this based on your personal experience. Did you want to say anything about that day and then the poem that ensued as a result? Yeah, um, it was pretty much before there were any vaccinations. So I wasn't really seeing people and I was staying as far away as I could, except for food shopping and other necessities. And 
and just the isolation, but I walked a lot. And it was sort of how I dealt with the stress and, and, and the isolation. This was actually, this poem was written as a prompt to writing about fear. Fear, and what I thought about is that uh, actually how I respond more with fear now than I did when I was young and that I was better at hiding it when I was young. It doesn't mean that I didn't have the fear, but I think when you youth, you have a kind of bravado and that you carry that into your adult life. So that moment is a moment, but it's also a moment that has a lot, a hundred other moments or a thousand other moments before it, when they were, you know, one felt fear or I felt fear. And so that was some of what went into this poem. Yeah. And that's in your poem. I mean, there's a big shift, right? Uh, there's a lot about the fear. And I'm really sorry, by the way, that this happened to you, especially as you're explaining it's even before we had a vaccination when like millions of people were dying. And so there's that line. I hid my body under layers of clothes chose to write poetry on torn pieces of used binder papers or in journals where my letters got smaller and smaller, almost invisible, like my queer body performing disappearing acts, right? Shrinking from that fear of which you speak. Um, but then there's that shift. And this is where I'm like, oh, my goodness, this is just so great immediately you say I chose instead to set my syllables on fire with magnifying glasses over leaves burn the whole building down fantasies that arise before sleep touching my own trembling writing out New York snowstorms on the tip of my untamed tongue oh gosh I just love that it just reminded me of of Gloria Anzaldúa, the untamed tongue, that resistance, that fire. Did you want to say anything about that? I, uh, I mean, I think like many people who've experienced having to be invisible, you know, our writing comes from a place, especially when we're younger, of trying to work things out. But if I look, I have a few of my old journals and like you see, and it's like you could barely read. I mean, now you can barely read my handwriting because I have terrible handwriting. But then it was because the print was so small and it was like I was trying to hide it from other people. But also that I realized, well, then I was also hiding it from myself in some ways. Also, the choice of using language. Then you have the choice of not using language to hide, of, of shifting to a place where you can use language to reveal and language to uncover what is going on. And to me, that is also an act of courage, you know, because when you put your words on page and especially if you read them out loud to people, then there's a, a kind of vulnerability, but it's also very empowering. You know, writing has always been very important to me and in, in, in terms of becoming who I am and, and discovering who I am in some ways. And, um, as well as giving me courage. There's, there's a pattern in your poem. It starts, I think, with like, there's this fear, right? Because this, there's this man, this white man who coughs on you. Then there's your memory. You take us back to the time of fearlessness. Like you said, when we're young, and you have a lot of these amazing lines in here where I spent morning penetrating their brains with my eyes. 
Um, I could pierce their facade of bravery. All right. And then you go back and you start to shrink, right? The fear comes back. And then there's the, the eruption of the fearlessness, that memory of like, wait, I was once fearless, you know, at the returning, like finding mm-hmm. your, your power coming right. back to your power. Yeah. I mean, and a lot of this is also true. I mean, it's, it's kind of indelible in, in my brain, you know, this, this image of these, of these guys and how they really were cowards. And I think that when you're young, maybe you don't see how cowardly they are because they're big and, you know, they're bigger than I was for one thing. And, but also, you know, it's, I grew up in a time where people didn't even talk about homophobia. And so that's a, you know, that's a real difference now between when I was growing up. And so they were homophobic, but no one ever really talked about it. And that was another layer of invisibility, not to mention misogynist, you know. And, um, you know, I think that looking back, you re- I realized that probably their lives weren't so great either, but that doesn't excuse what they did. And it certainly doesn't excuse the racism, homophobia and misogyny. And someone had to question them. But I think in the end, they they kind of burn themselves out <laughs> more than yeah. anyone else. And I, I, I just love how the poem ends because you shrink them. You sort of eviscerate them, at least from your imagination, right? You can't get rid of, you know, all that hatred, at least not overnight. And there's that line that's italicized. The only part that's italicized in your poem that says, how many rooms will be filled with these hateful young men? You know, and I'm glad you called it in terms of the gender, because that's a piece that's just missing in our conversation, right? When I think of all the mass shootings, when I think of what happened in Uvalde, Texas, when I think of Buffalo, New York, over and over again, we there's that missing point that, hello, a lot of these are men, something's going on in our society. And I think you nailed it. Like there's something that needs to happen, a conversation that's missing. What is it that's going on that that these men erupt with this this kind of violence? And what kind of pain is locked inside? And like you said. You want to treat it with compassion, but it doesn't, it doesn't excuse the behavior, but there's definitely something going on where this, this inability to express your emotions in a healthy way. Yeah. Uh, but I love the last line. We'll, we'll end there and let him merge into the horizon, a pinpoint on my imagination. So they got small. They are the ones who got smaller and smaller and smaller became a little pinpoint. And, and thank you for that. I, I think we need this you know, for our own emotional and mental health, those of us who come from um, minoritized backgrounds in, in, in the current society in which we're living, which very much feels like the twilight zone sometimes. Yeah, that's definitely true because, I mean, all of us who have gone through things like this know that sometimes it lives inside your body for decades and that how how do you get to the point where that doesn't happen anymore those aren't the voices in your head another voice is replaces it into your own voice it's an authentic voice and just as a plug i mean that's why i support so strongly having ethnic studies in our uh, our public schools from k up to 12 um, as well as in the universities and the community colleges. But, you know, because we need to have that as a counterbalance to the narrative that has been given us in our, in our public schools. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. We were just listening to Carla Schick's poem. I wanted to talk to a person, but had to let speech go.
very powerful poem. If you want to read it, it'll be in Journal X, the second edition. All right, moving on, we are going to loop back to Claudia Ramirez Flores. Claudia is going to read her second poem. Take it away. This poem is entitled Human Bones. Human Bones, something no one should have to see. Real physical elements of a human being. Remains, bracelets, rosaries, notes, and their little papelitos with contact numbers. Human bones, their teeth always survive. Mexico is grieving, missing, mourning, mad. Las Madres in the front line, a quiet country, a mother wailing, and a quiet system, a sister screaming, loud corrupted system, powered by el gringo. Human DNA disappears under fire, burning holes with human remains. A pit of fire burning in the woods, in the caves, the side of the road. Mexico is grieving. Immigrants risking their lives for a chance to survive. People disappearing by the minute with nowhere to run. A human being, a light shut down. The miracle of life taken. And now your family yearns for answers. Where can you be? Oh, where, oh, where can you be? In a deep hole, a ditch, or a trench, did a good Samaritan give you a proper burial after finding you in a desierto calcinado, or perhaps you were burned, chopped, or exploded in a famous sinister pozole mix? Mexico is in pain. Mexico is crying. Vanish. Flesh, flies, flush, ghouls, teeth, spines, sparkles in the rosaries. Stories in their backpacks, shoes, a thousand shoes, a thousand rosaries, a thousand bones, a thousand dreams, a thousand souls, a thousand lives, a thousand families, a thousand hearts. El mexicano se escapa de México para salvar su vida, la vida de sus hijos. Pantalón talla 36, dentadura entera. Retrieve bodies, retrieve dreams, retrieve screams. Don't step on the human remains. You have done your mission, Madres Buscadoras. We found six full bodies and a few others in pieces. A full denture, some keys, recently dead. Today is a good day. Today is a cold day. That was Claudia Ramirez Flores reading her poem, Human Bones. A very a painful poem but very important. It reminds me of uh, something that one of the Journal X poets said to me. Our journal has poets who are incarcerated in Mule Creek State Prison. And Brian Warner wrote a poem about migrants crossing the border. And he said to me, this is all, of course, by snail mail, because they can't email or anything like that. Uh, But when he submitted his poem, he said, I hope people don't forget about the migrants that are crossing the border, about the war that's happening right now, because there's all this talk about the war in Ukraine. So uh, it's wonderful to have your poem that really uh, brings that issue front and center. And I happen to know that this is actually a real experience. Did did you want to tell listeners about this? Yeah, so um, it is, um, it was, it came about from a mixture of two poems, one that I wrote at the very beginning of my 
diverse search for my brother that went missing in Mexico after he left our town. So he has had a really troubling past and, and he left um his hometown to try to come back to the U.S. And he has, hasn't been seen and it's almost been two years now. So at the very beginning, when I started like searching for his body or, or for him, which was the initial search, I would see all these images of like mothers and the front line, thousands of people disappearing. Um, and then this, what they leave behind, like the little papers, their bracelets, the rosaries, the things that are left behind. And then the more vivid images of the human bones, the teeth that are always the ones that seem to be found and where they can retrieve the DNA. And I think a lot of us are really oblivious to what, what's going on, like in our next door neighbors in their country. Um, like people are disappearing and it's happening like every single day. So um, then like the last poem, when I, when I stopped looking at these images because they were a little bit, they were impacting me a lot. I, I um, came a, across an article where they found like, I think it was like six bodies at, at that time, but then it, it was later identified as like 20 bodies um, of um, people. So the, the, and it's always the mothers who are looking for them and finding the bones, the remains, and trying to match them with, with the lo- um, lost ones. And the irony, right? Today is a good day. Today is a cold day. That, that's so difficult, right? But there's that search for the bodies. And so to find these bodies that have been diseased or decomposed, it's it's a, a tragedy, but it's also a good day because you retrieved a body. It's very, very painful. And, and I'm th- this poem, I was so struck by um the craft. You're doing so many different things in this poem. I mean, beyond the subject matter, which is so important, right, for our, our listeners, our readers, because one can really tune out about what's going on in the border. And this is happening like as we speak, right? The militarization, militarization of the border, people trying to get in, people being denied entry, uh, the, the restrictions against folks seeking asylum. But you're doing mm-hmm. so many interesting things here, which just blew my mind. There's a lot of alliteration, right? Like when you say Mexico is grieving, missing, mourning, mad. And then there's a lot of enjambment and the anaphora, Mexico is grieving, the repetition of that line, the contrasting images just also is, is pretty amazing. Mexico is in pain. Mexico is crying. And you have a quiet country, the quiet, the country is quiet. And then there's a mother wailing and you have a quiet system, right? So you're mentioning the, the quiet, right? Because I imagine it's because people just don't really talk about it. The media is maybe not reporting about it, but it's happening. But then a sister screaming, right? The voices of the families who are searching for the bodies are screaming and wailing. How difficult was it for you to write this poem? Thank you. I think it was extremely difficult, but I I know that poetry for me is a way to heal and I know that this was this is a really painful experience to me um especially as being the one that had to look at these images and and just see all these dead people like all these missing people that that were retrieved like the bones it was a way for me to to heal from all the imagery and and a way to honor them as well because 
sometimes they their families don't ever find them but at least somebody was honoring them through the poetry so my brother's still missing and um it was it was really difficult and it's difficult to to read and I know that my mom is in pain as well but I know that that with um, art and poetry it's a way for me to transform the pain into a much um, bigger thing than myself and my pain yeah and I think you do that beautifully I love this line sparkles in their rosaries stories in their backpacks, right? They're not just bones. They're not just dead bodies. They're human beings um, with stories to tell. So you you bring them, you bring them here in the, the poem. They have a thousand dreams, thousands of lives, thousands of hearts. Not only do you humanize these migrants who are lost on the border, but you also let us know this is, we're talking the thousands, you know, this is a catastrophe. So thank you so much, Claudia. It's an honor for us to have you here. So we have our last poet, Gustavo. We're coming back to you. Take it away. Okay. This one I call Watson. I went to Ohlone land, Costanoan land, White Hawk land, Pajaro Valley land, seeking refuge from La La land, LA, hesitant to return to the concrete jungle. I requested asylum temporary protective status from a town, a people, un pueblo, que era más Michoacán que la herencia de un tal juez Watson, Watson, which was more Michigan, I mean Michoacán, than the inheritance of a so-called Judge Watson or the ones that called the valley El Valle del Pájaro por el Río. I came to town, a town where red berries are separate from blueberries and campos that are basically hoyos, a place where at times blue hit from red and at times red hit from blue across streets named Freedom. I came to a Watson like a phoenix rising from the closing of Canerias in the 80s, deserted by a giant that was only interested in the green of a dollar. A pueblo rising from drowning floods caused by the Rio. I came to Watson in the middle of the decade of xenophobia, which followed the decade of his panic. A 187 proposed without caring for the brown skin of the human beings who picked the berries and the other produce whose labor they produced. I came to Watson to the hospitality of Rios and a poder that was raising its fist. A renaissance of sorts where cheeky brown berets dance Mexica dances and were shedding the tricolor flag of a nation that spits people out, embracing the prophecy of El Aguila y El Condor, engaging in peace and dignity journeys, jornadas de paz y dignidad. Watson, where Alfredo, el Chicano migrante from Los, Laverne to be exact, yet really a citizen of the world, witness to a U.S. aborted peace in Nicaragua, hermano to many, took me to some of my first temascales. Watson, where we, even those who were not of Mexican extraction, danced banda on the streets during fiestas patrias. Watson, where Alejandro met Erika, and he left his locks and his mark like an umbilical cord. Watson, where Japanese citizens were sent to Salas before they were incarcerated in Arizona because of a so-called Patriotic Order 9066. Watson, not too far from the Holy Cross of a place, Santa Cruz, where two indigenous Mexican men had been lynched, yes, lynched, not much more than a century earlier. Watson, where young people fought against mirror images whose most notable differences were the colors they wore and where their families were able to settle. 
the sides of the streets, the rivers, and the arbitrary lines that men carved into Mother Earth. At the high schools, in and out of town, these hurt youth, hurt youth, shot real and word bullets, calling each other vermin or trash, while I try to teach conganas that no human being is illegal. Ningún ser humano es una lacra. No human being is a scrap, no matter how poor they may be. What's on the town where Alicia of the Najera clan, whose mental health work on behalf of La Salud para la Gente, was immortalized despite the fact that she has become an ancestor and ancestra now. What's on where Colibri and Mariposa, Maribri, Hummingbird, Butterfly, Youth, kissed mirror images of themselves despite disapproval, were taking care of themselves and each other before graduating high school because their parents had abandoned them. Watson, a place where the Coral of the Bay of Monterey meets the dunes, a town which also tells you, sal si puedes, leave if you can, or is it, yes, you can, leave, yes, you can. Watson, the place where Sayo comes to rest, rejuvenated and rise from her work at a city on a hill. Watson, where Carlos, Yakira, Balam, Bosco, and the rest of the clan, my folks, make me feel at home, even when I am far away from home, punto. Thank you so much, Gustavo. I love this poem. As some of you know, I live in Watson, which is Watsonville, California, and you just covered so much history. I feel like your poem should be like our town poem and we need to like put it on a plaque or something like that. Tell us about your time in Watsonville and why you wrote this poem. I actually wrote it for the call for for poets because I didn't have my poems I mean I didn't have a poem that really kind of covered my experience there um, and I tend to work better with deadlines and prompts so knowing that you all were going to publish this I actually told my friend you know I gotta write something down and this is what came out um, so it's a general ex exclusive um, so I graduated from UC Santa Cruz in the middle of the 90s and I lived in Watsonville for two and a half years. And this is about my experience there. It has a lot of hidden meaning and symbolism, you know, and obviously I, I did some research into, you know, what had happened in Watsonville before I got there um, and in Santa Cruz County, but also very personal, you know, where I mentioned the names of some of the people who received me and, and organizations that I worked with and also a lot of hidden uh, meaning in terms of you know some of the people who couldn't come out and maybe have never come out of the shadows of different uh, closets, right? Uh, so yeah, that's kind of my ode to what's on. Yeah, I did catch a lot of the names. There's Alicia of the Najera clan, Sayo, Oscar. I imagine it's Oscar Rios because you meant the play with Rios and the river. Carlos, Yakira, Balan, Bosco. Yeah, it's great. I, I don't know all these folks, but I know some. So I feel so honored that you wrote this poem for Journal X. This is great. And I love that you cover so much about Watsonville. It's, it's got the good and it's got the bad, right? We have our problems. There's a, the red raspberries and the blue uh, blueberries that are, I imagine you're talking about like um, gangs and things like that. And also the agricultural fields. So it's rich. This poem is just terrific. Gracias. Yeah. Yeah. And did you want to say a little bit about um, uh, your own background? Uh... Well, I was born in Guatemala, Central America, and uh, 
migrated or actually I'm, I'm, I'm using the term displaced more than migrated. Um, so my parents had migrated internally uh, to try to make a living within Guatemala City. And then, and then we were displaced economically because we couldn't afford to have a piece of land or anything. So my father came to LA and then my mother came to LA and then I came illegally if we want to use that term, with a Coyota back before we had un unaccompanied minors and, you know, caravans. This is in the early 80s. And I lived in L.A. for almost 10 years. And then I really needed to get away. So I went to Santa Cruz, to UC Santa Cruz for undergrad. And I didn't want to come back. And that's how I ended up in Watsonville for two and a half years. And obviously, it's a place that has so much wonderful positive stuff going on and like any other place you know has its room for growth but it definitely has a special place in my heart yeah I, I love it I have to say I lived in Santa Cruz for nine years and I've been in Watsonville I think for 11 or 12 I absolutely love it I mean the whole county is just terrific well I think we've reached the end of our show unfortunately I could talk for days about your poems because they're so rich and so powerful and it's just so healing I always find poetry just like Claudia said it's just really really healing so I want to thank our listeners for joining us on the Hive Poetry Collective on KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. If you like what you hear, you can find us on Facebook, the Hive Poetry on KSQD, or follow us on Twitter at Hive Poetry, or visit our website, hivepoetry.org, and we will put that information in our show notes. And again, these were uh, our poets uh, featured in Journal X, the second edition, which will be released in August or September of 2022. You can find information about Journal X by going to the Cabrillo College website and typing Journal X in the search box. So thank you so much, Carla, Claudia, and Gustavo. And before we sign off, for those of you in the Santa Cruz area, please join us at Bookshop Santa Cruz on Tuesday, July 5th at 7 p.m. for a live poetry event featuring Amanda Moore and our very own Hive Poetry Collective member, Dion O'Reilly. It's going to be a terrific event. Again, that's on Tuesday, July 5th at 7 p.m. with Amanda Moore and Dion O'Reilly. For more information, please visit our website at hivepoetry.org. Be for the honey, be, be for the, yeah. be 